So the uh, reading is starting at Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his death, life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I'd love you to have your Bible open because we are looking at a very, very precious passage. It's the end of Isaiah 52 and into 53. I think that what you have just heard read is the most famous of the servant songs. I think if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to Christian things, if you're just exploring, there is no single chapter in the whole Bible that you could look at that more carefully and more closely explains what happens on the cross of Jesus Christ than Isaiah 52 and 53. You need to look at it and you need to grapple with this if you're exploring Christianity, if you're new to Christian things. You need to look at this chapter afresh if you've been a Christian for a long time. Why? Because it talks about the cross in the most graphic and clearly defined ways. It talks about it emotionally and uh, volitionally. It explains the power of the cross, which is the centre and the heart of our faith from which we must not budge an inch. 
But when you come to it as a preacher or teacher, to be quite honest, my knees are knocking. Because this is holy ground. This would be the equivalent, if you were into art, of going to the Louvre or the Musée d'Orsay. When you go there, it's full of great pieces of artwork and you just see one there on display, or the National Gallery, to be French and English. We won't talk about the French from yesterday. It's as if you go to the National Ballet, if you're into culture. It's as if you are playing sport at Wembley or Wimbledon or Lords. When you go there, you recognise that you're at the very top of your game. Or you make it to the Olympics. Or you go to the English Library and you look at precious works of literature that you're not allowed to touch with your hands. You have to put on special gloves to look at first editions or you use one of those pointer thingies that look kind of strange because you're looking at a very precious piece of art or text. We've got a very precious passage of scripture here that I'm kind of nervous about looking at, to be quite honest. But in these five stanzas, I want to make four points. Four principles, I think, that we need to grapple with beginning at the end of Isaiah 52. They're going to pop up. If we're going to learn the principles, I think the first one we need to learn, whether we're new to Christian things, whether we've been a Christian for a long time, these verses, verses 13 to 15 at the end of Isaiah 52, tell us about a paradox. It's too long a word. So I use the word mixture. You need to understand the mixture that there is in this passage that helps us to understand the mixture or paradox that there is when you become a Christian. What do I mean? Look at verse 13 of Isaiah 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This word wise means to be successful. It talks about triumph and exaltation, a recognition of someone who is great the servant of the Lord. But look at verse 14, the next sentence. When they looked at him, the same person, when they looked at him, they were appalled. This word appalled is really strong when it talks about a tower or a stronghold being appalled. It's the word for shattered or destroyed. It's a word that when a town is laid under siege, not one brick is left on another. It's absolutely devastated. Now translate that to a person. When this word shattered is used about a person, it means that they are pulverised. It means that they have been so badly wounded that they make you physically sick when you look at them. That's how strong a word this is. They don't look like a human anymore. They're so badly beaten that they are disfigured beyond recognition. Why? Well, notice verse 14. That's exactly what happened to this servant, the servant of the Lord. Verse 14, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Let's put these two things together, this great mixture, this great paradox from verse 13 and 14. We're talking about someone who's going to experience incredible triumph and honour. Verse 13, and yet the mixture comes, the next sentence, but they're also going to experience incredible defeat. They're going to experience terrible suffering. Exaltation, but defeat. Glory and honour, and yet terrible suffering. And physical torture, we can even use that word. 
And as I meditated on this, one of the things I think we get from this is the principle that anyone who follows in the footsteps of Jesus, the Bible tells us this, anyone who follows the servant of the Lord that the New Testament explains as Jesus, anyone of the servants of the Lord, anyone who would follow the servant of the Lord needs to grasp that life before the Lord Jesus returns for a second time will be full of this paradox and mixture of great joys and happiness and tremendous difficulties and suffering. That will be our human experience if we follow the servant of the Lord. And the reason I want to make that point is because it's been my experience more times than I'd care to admit that Christians, young Christians, have come to me and said something like this. I've become a Christian and life is not working out as I thought it would. I thought following Jesus was going to be light and actually it's darkness. I thought following Jesus was going to be happiness and it's led to sadness. If Jesus was really for me, if God knew what I needed, this would not have happened to me. Or slightly different. Okay, I know life is not supposed to be heaven yet on earth, but I thought it would be easier than this. I can handle suffering, but this thing that God has allowed to happen in my life has been too much. How do we grapple at that? We need to look at Jesus, and we need to look at this mixture. If we follow the footsteps of the suffering servant, we will suffer. We will suffer. There will always be a mixture that we need to grapple hold of from verses 13 to 15. There will be sunshine, as we sang about, but there will also be a storm. There will be a cloud, but there will be a silver lining. There will be defeat, but there will also be success. There will be sadness, but there will also be moments of great joy. And that's the pathway of following the king, who was the suffering servant. No story tells this better than the true story of Joseph in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It's a long story that I'll summarise very, very briefly. You know it kind of well. There was the younger brother who was a proud upstart. He was the favoured one of the father and his brothers had enough of it and so they ripped his multicoloured uh, cloak and it made him look as if he was dead. They tricked their daddy and they sold him into slavery and he spent years in a prison. And then there was a, a rising up after many years of unheard prayers so that he was second in command in the whole of Egypt, managing Pharaoh's grain stores so that he could avert a, a famine by the provision that God had enabled him to look after. And you look at that and the 20 years that he spent with unanswered prayers. And you look at that and you see the suffering that that man was led into by the hand of God. And you think, why was that necessary? Was God with him at the end of his life? In that famous verse in Genesis 50, verse 20, we can see that Joseph was just beginning to see that God was with him every step of the way. But what would have happened, what would Joseph's life have looked like if God had not led him into difficulty? What if prison and what if suffering was not part of his existence? Well, for Joseph, it, he would have been a proud young upstart who grew into a, a very proud older upstart. He would have made his brother's and his father's life properly a living hell. He needed his heart dealt with through hardship, through the sandpaper of suffering, as it's been called. What about the brothers? Well, the brothers, they would have perished in a 
famine if Joseph had not gone through suffering and then exaltation to second in command. Well, what about the, uh, what about the whole people of Israel? Well, if Joseph hadn't gone into suffering and into prison and then into the palace, if he hadn't become second in command, that means he wouldn't have brought his family down to Egypt and that means God's plans would have been thwarted later down the line. The point is, friends, you never really know what God is doing in your life until you look back. But just because you're in hardship, extreme <coughs> or subtle, does not mean that God has left you. It certainly does not mean that God doesn't love you. You never really know by looking at your own life, through the hardship, through the terrible, through the difficulty, that God has left you. Because God never will if you're a Christian. And if you look at the life of Jesus, you see the pattern in this life is a mixture of great joys but also difficulties. So we need to understand the mixture that God's wise, his redemptive, his sovereign love is completely compatible, completely compatible with a life of hardship and difficulty. Just read the story of Johnny Erickson and you'll see another example. That's the first principle from the first stanza, the first group of these three verses, there are five of them, that's the one we can see at the end of chapter 52. But here's the next one. If you need to understand the mixture, you need to accept the ordinariness. The ordinariness, what do I mean? Look at the first three verses from chapter 53. The first three verses of 53. Look at uh, how Jesus is described, verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. The word despised means to laugh at. He was laughed at and we esteemed him not. Now if you're retired, you need to have a good memory. But for those of you that are still in the workforce, it will be fresher. Do you remember the last time you had to sell yourself, the last time you had to promote yourself? You had to uh, write a CV, that's true, not made up, and you have to go before a superior and you have to say, this is why I want this job. You put in the application, hopefully they respond, but you have to sell yourself, don't you? Past performance is an indicator, we hope, of future success. You've got to say, this is the experience I had. This is the grades that I got at school and university. This is the character that my colleagues have recognised in me. This is why I'm going to do a good job. Please give the job to me. You sell yourself with your CV or resume. These verses say that Jesus didn't have any of those. Jesus had nothing in him as a divine human and a human who was completely divine to attract anybody to him. He had no money. He had no looks so that he stood out from the crowd. He had no marks of power so that a culture would be drawn to him. He had nothing. It says that verses 1, 2 and 3. There was nothing in him that we would have been drawn to. Think about it when Jesus was walking this earth and he went to the temple as a young boy. And what did the people say as they heard him speak? Isn't this Joseph's son? Who are you to be teaching us? It says that in the Gospels. And then it says they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. He looked completely ordinary, but he was extraordinary. 
Friends, one of the reasons that uh, people turn away from Christianity is because it's so ordinary, wonderfully ordinary. In our modern world, we want extraordinary. We want kapow, we want pizzazz. That's from Batman and Robin, I think. But we want extraordinary. We want people to be someone who never makes a mistake when they speak, someone who looks impressive, someone who looks attractive. No one can be overweight. That's the cardinal sin of the modern world. We want spectacular, not ordinary. You want dramatic, you want sudden. But God deals in the ordinary as well as the extraordinary. Two quick examples. Take guidance. There you are, you've become a Christian and you are longing for God just to show you exactly where you should be going, what you should be doing and how you should be doing it. Shall I marry this person or not? Shall I take this career path or that one? Shall I live here or shall I live in that postcode? God, just give me a sign. Like those big ones on the M25. Not trouble ahead, just say there or there. Do I get on that plane or that one? We want a revelation, we want dramatic, we want speed, because everything in the modern world is about those things. Friends, the way God guides us is through this book, the Bible. It's very, very ordinary. The way God guides us is through this book by his Spirit. It takes discipline, it takes years, it takes decades of reading and studying and discerning the mind of God. How do you do that? By reading this book. And then as you do that, over decades, God begins to reprogram your mind, so to speak. It's not mind control. I don't mean that at all. It's discipline. And then you start to think along God's priorities. You start to have the same attitudes of God, the same priorities of God, the same themes that are coming out in the book of God begin to take hold of you. And then you become someone who is wise in the word. That's how God guides it's not dramatic. Very, very rarely does God do dramatic. More often than not, he does ordinary. And there's nothing in the extraordinary nature of Jesus, verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 53, for us to be drawn to him. That's just guidance. What about change? When you become a Christian, you long to change with a great uh, finger coming from heaven. And your heart and your priorities is completely and radically changed in an instant. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you could just do that? I want to be liberated from my past life. The mistakes I've made, I've got no responsibilities because of my past. That's not how God works. He works gradually and in an orderly way. I just want to be liberated. I want to be free. I want the bad things to go away. That's not how God works. He works gradually and slowly and tenderly because that's all we can take. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that tells us that the Apostle Paul had a, a great big problem in his life. Let me read you one sentence. I prayed to God over and over and over again to, this is my paraphrase, to take away a thorn in my flesh. We don't know what that is, but God gave Paul a thorn in his flesh. It's a metaphor, probably describes a person. We don't know, but it's a person that was making uh, Paul's life very, very difficult and painful and arduous and he pressed God to say, please take it, whatever the it was, take it away from me. And God said, no, I'm not going to do it. 2 Corinthians 12, God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. But I, I know what's best, God, I want you to take it away now. My power is made perfect 
in weakness. Change comes not through the dramatic and the radical um, linking up, but like in the matrix, and your past is erased and your future is uh, newly downloaded. It's not like that. It's God giving you the spirit in your heart who teaches you patience and self-control, who gives you new taste buds for new things in life, who teaches you through humbling you and bringing you low and showing you his sufficiency day by day. Look at verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a metaphor that Isaiah has written down for us. This, the arm of God is a description in the Old Testament predominantly showing the power of his might, like biceps on, on display. And how is this How's the power of God displayed? Through strength sometimes, but here it's through weakness. Through a man, the servant of the Lord, who's very, very ordinary, and whose life is a mixture of power on display, but tremendous suffering at the cross. Here's number three. Here's the third principle we need to look at from the next stanza. Recognizing a mixture of life, the ordinaries ordinariness of uh, how God deals with us. And then thirdly, the magnitude of God's love. The magnitude of God's love is the third principle. Look at sentences four through six from Isaiah 53. Look at how voluntary Jesus' love is. Verse four, surely he took up our infirmities. This sentence doesn't just say that our sins like a bundle were put on Jesus. It doesn't simply say that. Look at it carefully. It says that Jesus lifted them off us. He took our sins upon himself. Friends, can I remind you that Jesus' death was the only voluntary death, truly voluntary death, the world has ever seen. There are tremendous, tremendous and wonderful and tear-inducing memories of people in the armed services, people uh, who work for the police or the fire or nurses that, that go into very, very difficult situations, burning buildings, car wrecks, war situations, and they rescue friends or even enemies. People who don't deserve it are rescued and they lose their lives. Think of Grenfell. People going into deliberate harm, knowing they may not come out for the lives of others. Wonderful acts of heroism but they are choosing how they will die. And actually, friends, because of our sins, the Bible says each one of us deserves to die. And that means that Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who never sinned, he is the only person in all of human history who chose his death. He didn't have to die. He chose to die. He didn't deserve to die, but he was willing to die. Death is unavoidable for us. It was not unavoidable for him. Death had no rights on him. Eternal life is what Jesus deserved. And now you're beginning to see the magnitude of the love of God. Death had no hold on him. Verse 4, he was stricken. Verse 5, he was wounded. Verse 6, all our sins were laid on him. This is the only completely voluntary death in all of human history because Jesus Christ did not deserve it, but we do. But if Jesus is fully man and fully God, how 
did the arms that flung the stars into space, how did they, how were they restrained on the cross? I mean, nails wouldn't have done it. How would nails keep the limbs of the creator on a wooden cross that he spoke into being? How would the arms of the king of the universe be held in place by bits of iron fashioned by somebody with a hammer? What would be strong enough to hold him down? Do you see the problem? It wasn't ropes, it wasn't nails. The only thing that could have held Jesus down was love if he was there voluntarily, if he was there because he wanted to be there for a greater purpose and a greater good. It says down that in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Why was Jesus on the cross? But he didn't have to be there. Verse 10 says, He will see, the servant will see the results of his suffering and be satisfied. Do you know what that means? If Jesus was held upon the cross not by pieces of rope or nails, if he was held there because of a free choice of love for the honour of his Father and for our great good, we are the ones who receive all the benefit of what Jesus did. He's saying, I'm going to see people sitting in Stanford Green School in 2018. I'm going to see the reward of my suffering and I will be satisfied. He died for me and he died for you. That's what this table points us to. That's what Easter is all about. Jesus lost everything. The king of the cosmos, the creator of the universe. He was crushed for you. He suffered for you. He didn't look human anymore. Verses 13 to 15 tell us that. He was so badly disfigured that your stomach would be upset just looking at him. He lost his beauty. He lost his glory. He lost his physicalness, his well-being. And he did it for the glory of his Father and he did it for me and he did it for you. And when he thinks, was it worth it? Jesus would say yes. Verse 10 tells us so. He saw his, the results of his suffering and he was suffering, uh, and he was satisfied. Friends, we need to realize the magnitude of his love for you. Jesus said, is there any other way? And his father said, no. Do you sense that? Have you got over familiar with that? Are you indifferent to that? We need to realise the magnitude of his love. Finally, fourthly, when you see that, afresh you need to live out of and live off of this principle. What do I mean? You need to live off it, you need to live it out. There is a principle that John Stott said, summarises the whole of the Bible. It's substitution. Substitution is seen throughout the whole Bible and it's seen throughout the whole of this passage as well. Someone dying in the place of the other. Someone laying down their life in the place of another. An animal taking the place of a person or a family or a community in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus died not just for himself. He just didn't die voluntarily. He died for some other people. He died in the place of others. The big word is vicariously. 
He died substitutionarily. And ten times in these sentences, you get that point. I'll just mention three. Here are three. Verse four. Our sorrows went on him. Our sorrows went on him. Verse five. Our punishment went on to him. Verse 12 of chapter 53. And he was numbered with the transgressors. You can look at the others later on, but ten times there's this principle of Jesus is carrying something that's not his own. And verse uh, 12, it says that he was numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was put with criminals. He was treated as if he was unrighteous, although he was completely righteous. Verse 11 tells us that from Isaiah 53. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. What does that mean? It means, friends, Jesus was treated as if he had done all the things that we have done. So that we can be treated as if we have done all the things that he has done. It's substitution. Sin... Sin is you and me substituting ourselves for God. We stand in his place. We want to rule our lives when he should be ruling our lives. Salvation, being rescued, is God substituting himself for us, putting himself where we should be. We should be in the dark. We should be on the cross. But Jesus says, no, I will rescue that people for myself. And the only way to do that is if I go and die on the cross and bear the punishment that they deserve. They can't rescue themselves, so I will rescue them. I have a strong dislike for all things Disney. I'll just say that publicly. <laughs> but I recognise that those Disney writers can sure tell a story. Beauty and the Beast is one of the oldest and the best. Do you know the story of Beauty and the Beast of... Uh, the man who's disfigured beyond any human likeness. It's part of his own actions that he's disfigured. And how is his beauty restored? How is his handsome demeanour restored? Well, Belle gives him a good old sloppy kiss towards the end of the film, and his beauty is restored. It's my conviction that one of our main struggles with other people, even with church friends, is that we would run a mile if you saw what goes on in my heart. We think we are like the beast on the inside, and so we put on a mask, we say the right words, we wear respectable clothes, but if people really saw what you were like on the inside, you would be appalled. And so desperately we do lots of things. We get creative and we try and make ourselves more beautiful on the outside. Some of that's physical, some of it can be working really hard, so intellectually we're more powerful than other people. Sometimes it can be we can get more toys than other people. We can, whether that toys when we were a child, whether it's toys and phones when we were a teenager, whether it be houses and cars when we were older, whatever it may be, we're trying to make ourselves more attractive on the outside because on the inside we know we're like the beast. We know that we're ugly. If the Beauty and the Beast story from Disney is a pretty good story, I'll give them that, and it's about the kiss at the end, isn't this far more wonderful? Us who are beastly on the inside and on the out, the only way that beauty will be given to us is not through a kiss, but through 
nails in hands and wrists and feet. If the king of the universe would take all our, all our sin upon himself, all our rebellion, all our ghastliness, all our disfiguredness, all our beastliness upon, us, upon himself. Friends, if you know that, if you begin to grasp that in the gospel there is the great exchange, not only does Jesus take upon himself all that is ours, we get all that is his. When you grasp that daily, you begin to think less and less about sharing some of the brokenness that you have. You begin to get more and more concerned about the righteousness that you have received as a free gift. And that has made you beautiful before before the eyes of the king of the universe, and his is the only opinion that really matters. It's uh, beauty for brokenness. It's beauty for despair. If you get that, if you live off of that, you begin to be able to take down the mask, take down the walls, and live genuine lives. But then you also you have the power of God to live it out. You don't look down on people anymore. You are concerned for justice. You can live self-sacrificial lives because you are so secure that you don't look like a beast anymore on the outside or on the in. You've been transformed by the maker of the universe, not just Disney. You're convinced that you've been made beautiful by God because he's taken all your brokenness and all your sin and all your, all your rebellion upon himself. And one day, Ephesians 5 tells us that actually God will look upon us and he will see us as beautiful, not just on the inside but on the outside as well, because we have new bodies. Verse 1 of chapter 53 says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Where is God's power seen? Friends, it's seen on the cross, beauty and brokenness, and it's seen in ordinary lives that are changed and transformed by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus dying in our place. So easy to summarize. But we will never understand the power and the depth and the significance of the cross this side of eternity. We thank you that there is now in heaven a man with wounds whose name is Jesus. The death could not hold him. And the resurrection and the empty tomb proves that Jesus Christ is Lord over sin and death, that his sacrifice was seen by you, our Father, and accepted. And so we stand righteous and justified before you, a holy God, because of him. Please, I pray, help us to live on the basis of that solid and true truth, but then would it also affect how we live outwardly as well. Amen.